0: Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellis, your host. How powerful was the imagination in Byzantium? I don't mean were the Byzantines an imaginative people, though that would certainly be an interesting area to explore. I mean instead, how much social and political power did the imagination have? How powerful were vivid and evocative descriptions of imaginary events in terms of shaping policy or creating social norms? The most obvious area in which this might operate is that of fear. Now, fear can relate to things that are imaginary in the sense of being unreal. They're not going to happen. They were never going to happen. Or to things that might happen or might have happened. Or things that will happen. Modern societies, I feel, are particularly prone to creating elaborate fantasies about unreal things with real-world consequences. Uh, If you think uh, in the 19th century and to alleged international Jewish conspiracies, or later communist infiltration and the like, all of these fantasies, which were highly elaborate, uh, destroyed many people's lives. On a smaller scale, I recall from the 1980s the scares about satanic cults, uh, which were wholly imaginary. Um, Nevertheless, I remember the news on television using scenes from the movie The Exorcist in order to illustrate uh, what went on uh, when teenagers played fantasy role-playing games. Film is the obvious rhetorical medium through which our civilization is increasingly representing its fantasies. And this works just as well for events that did not happen, but could have happened, such as nuclear war. By some accounts, um, there's uh, the film, The Day After, actually shifted public opinion and even policy at the government lab- uh, level. So it made a huge difference for people to be able to visualize in a vivid way something that until then had only been a strategic abstraction. How would you or I experience nuclear war? What mental images are we supposed to have? Consider also the case of global warming and all its terrible consequences. Now, this is absolutely happening and is happening right now. It's also a very complex process with many moving parts. So we're all struggling to imagine it. For many years I thought of it primarily in terms of the rise of seawater levels. But that, it turns out, is very simplistic and it doesn't cover most of what's happening. Uh, So One of the problems of forming public policy about this issue is perhaps the difficulty of depicting it in concise graphic terms. This is not a failure of science, but so far of the imagination. It's difficult for us to imagine ourselves physically within that process in such a way that would compel us to take immediate public action. Now when we turn to Byzantium there's one obvious case of fantastic imaginary scenarios which have gained a lot of attention Uh, recently. These are the apocalyptic end times narratives that the Byzantines produced periodically. I may be in the minority in thinking that these did not engage very closely with any kind of social or political policy. Um, I I think they were more restricted to the realm of uh, theological entertainment than uh, being an actual motor force in history, Uh, but uh, we can have that uh, discussion some other time. Uh, The other case, um, and the one that uh, we will be discussing today, is that of death, and death is something that will happen to all of us, and it is something that is very difficult to imagine uh, because uh, there's no one from the other side who can tell us what it's like. So it is an event, the experience of which is very highly conditioned by the imagination. And the specific way in which a culture chooses to represent it is potentially significant for the way in which it manages the anxieties and the, the, the power that comes from those anxieties um, within it. Today, I will be talking with Ellen Muehlberger, who is a professor of Christianity in the departments of Near Eastern Studies and History at the University of Michigan. And she's written an extraordinary book uh, called The Moment of Reckoning, Imagined Death and Its Consequences in Late Antique Christianity. Uh, The the elements of the title are significant. Uh, We'll come back to them um, during the conversation. Um, And this is a book about how death was imagined uh, both as a process happening to someone else described externally, but also as a process happening to oneself, um, and the different rhetorical means by which um, Byzantine writers uh, imagined that in a subjective way, enabling individual Christians and congregants to put themselves in that situation and draw the conclusions uh, that the preachers hoped they would draw. This then is my conversation with Ellen Muhlberger. All right, welcome, Ellen, and thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. Hi, thanks, and uh, happy new podcast, too. Thank you. Uh, so I wanted to talk about your book, um, The Moment of Reckoning, Imagined Death and Its Consequences in Late Antique Christianity. Uh, I was actually kind of struck by the term imagined death in, in, in the subtitle, and I, I think it's a very important part of the book, and we'll come back to it later. Um, but just for the readers to know in advance, I think that the book makes a complex argument. It, it, it brings together a number of different fields. So it approaches the topic of death and the, uh, the, the preparation for death, the imagination of death from different angles. So specifically from talking about beliefs about, you know, the varied beliefs that Christians had about what happened after they died to the literary way in which they represented the expectation, the experience of the moment of death, especially in sermons. Um, And finally, uh, you propose an argument for how these beliefs and the literary representations were used to support arguments for religious coercion, even the use of violence. Um, So at that point, the argument, which has gone through, you know, beliefs and literary representation, turns to even social and state history. So let's um, walk through the argument, and we can explain to um, our listeners how the, uh, how it's constructed and what the different parts are. And so the first chapter that um, in, of your book is about the the death of the physical body as described from the outside by writers. And so you you talk about a number of important historical individuals and how their deaths were used by by Christian authors to make moral and theological arguments. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Certainly. That chapter started when I noticed how readers were using different pieces of the life of Constantine by Eusebius, Um, namely that, you know, they'd read about Constantine's parents or Constantine himself dying and treat those accounts as not necessarily historical, but not really in need of a lot of massaging to get to some historical fact about how these people died. But then there were others like, um, Galerius, for example, who dies in this horribly nasty way, you know, rotting essentially from the inside and stinking up the whole city. And people would just dismiss that and say, ah, well, this is clearly, you know, um, I think Rowan Williams might've said it was melodrama at one point. (laughs) Like, um, people would take those as hyperbolic descriptions and, I thought it was interesting that um, a single piece of literature had these two poles of how people were being described at their deaths, and historians were taking one with a lot of salt and one with very little salt. And I was interested in why that was happening. Right. So the research started there, and then I realized that uh, a very easy way to change the political cast of something that had happened was to talk about one of the people involved as dying badly. So, you know, we talk about how we wish bad things on our enemies, but this was a a literary tactic to look at the past and maybe understand it differently based on how the primary actors had died rather than any of the actions they had taken that you were trying to judge
0: yeah, so the expectation would be that a good Christian has a some sort of a beautiful death, whereas a problematic a heretic or persecutor of Christianity has a horrible death. Um, and I think we can easily imagine what a horrible death is like, but I think it's harder to can you can you say something about what a a beautiful Christian death of a, of a noble Christian hero would look like?
1: Much like uh, other people who had died well previous to Christianity, so you you're a man, you're surrounded by the people who are subordinate to you in some way, whether you're family members or your students. Um, and you're able to be lucid enough to tell them whatever it is that is most important to you, whether it's your teaching or you're able to dispose of your property in a certain way. And I don't know if you've been around people who are dying. Um, like you and I personally, you know, but I have, and I've almost never known someone to be that lucid up until the moment of their death. So immediately those accounts kind of struck me as, well, literary or fantastical. And I then started to wonder what they were doing. And it, it became clear to me that it was a way of distributing the authority of the person who was dying reliably and sort of in a structurally um, cohesive way. So rather than, you know, someone died on the battlefield and he wasn't able to name his successor or someone died very quickly and nobody knew what he wanted to have done next or what his next teaching was, there were the literary portraits of people who died in super controlled, um, very uh, continent ways, continent both physically and uh, I guess mentally.
0: Right. So it provides a sort of total closure on the meaning of their lives, right? And they, they pass on to either a, an heir or some sort of successor, depending on the well, institutional structure.
1: Right. And it's about continuity at that point, continuity of power and the lack of disruption. That I mean, death is a disruption. You know, you end up accumulating all this power or wealth or respect from your students over the course of a lifetime, and it dissipates when you die. And these literary pictures were a way of trying to make it not
0: dissipate. Right. Uh, speaking about <laughs> dissipate, so you talk a lot about the death of Arius, <laughs> uh, the sort of arch heretic, or you know person who was used to create the image of the arch heretic in in uh, in early imperial Christianity. And and boy, did he dissipate. Uh, can you say something <sighs> about the way in which his death was described as a counterweight? It,
1: fatal diarrhea is a phrase that you don't often use (laughs) though diarrhea you know like as a physical phenomenon often is fatal for people if they're not eating and drinking enough but he uh is portrayed not just in this text but in several others um as having publicly had diarrhea in such a way that he you know left half of his insides on the ground and then died and yeah
0: it was like explosive diarrhea
1: Right, right, and there—I mean—there are some um, really excellent images that are made by later artists of his death that uh, capture what we're talking about. Um, But it's a—you know—if you think about the earlier pictures, as I use the word "continent" on purpose, because this is the absence of continents, and it um, in the story or in Arius's life, it comes at a time when things are a little bit shaky. That is uh, for readers probably all of your listeners know this, but I'm just going to go through the small points of the history. Um, Arius had a theological opinion that for many Christians didn't square with the council of Nicaea's idea about how Christ was. And so um, in the three thirties, there was among Christian intellectuals, there was a sense that perhaps things could be reconciled with him. And in fact, the the lead up to his death is he's in Constantinople um, And he's petitioning to be let back into the church. And the bishop there does not want to allow him back in the church. But it seems as if he has the support of the emperor. And then without the thing resolving itself, he dies before um, there's a moment where he's let back into the church. And that solves a lot of problems. I mean, if Arius were someone who were um, back in communication, then the starkness and sort of the clearness of are you Nicene or are you not ends up falling apart
0: yeah I mean, he was on the verge of persuading Constantine to let him back in uh, i I found it fascinating that that his the account of his death is uh, situated in the form of Constantine mm-hmm. and that he you know he was sort of desperately looking for a bathroom and they tell him <laughs> oh there's one over there and and, and this is striking because. He he explodes in the latrines, you know, adjacent to the form of Constantine. And I think that there's a sort of interesting topographical uh, sort of mapping of their deaths because the form of Constantine, you know, there's the column of Constantine with his statue up on top at the highest point in the city at this point. And in the same place, you have Arius dying at the lowest place. In fact, the form of Constantine was had sewers underneath. And so presumably that's where you know, Arius is dying adjacent, you know, in the, on, the, on the way to those sewers, right? Right. Um, so it's, it's a spatial representation, I think, uh, also of their respective, you know, uh, lives and deaths. Uh, I, that's
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, historically, did it happen there? Unclear. But um, in terms of a symbolic representation, you couldn't get any starker.
0: Yeah, it was a tourist attraction afterwards, you say that, right? That, that they pointed out, like, this is where Arius died. It's possible right there's a ninth century text that talks about it being
1: a um, a tourist destination of sorts I, I guess for for listeners in the United States it'd be like dying on the National Mall you know yeah, like in yeah, a yeah. in a porta potty on the national Mall or if you're in Rome dying like on some bathroom off an alley near the Spanish steps maybe uh, <laughs> like, right?
0: yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, so the first chapter establishes the manner of your death as uh in a reflective and indicative of your standing within the Christian community. Mm-hmm. Um and and then in the second chapter you turn to the literary representation, especially in sermons, of the subjective experience of the moment of death. Um which sort of looks at it's a it's a very different perspective from what we get, you know, in in the external dis, uh, historical descriptions. And I thought that Maybe we could start uh, by you reading one of those passages, because I think they're very evocative, and your your book uh, gives a number of them, but um, maybe you'd like to read what what, what you discussed, uh, Jacob of Sarug.
1: Yeah, sure, and this is from a um, a metrical homily where he describes what it is like to die, Mm -hmm. and uh, eventually he comes to use second-person So he's talking, you know, you should do this, you should do that. But in this section, he's talking in the third person. So he's describing someone else's death. He says, when the angel of death is sent by God and encounters the soul, the soul is frightened as if it were by a kidnapper. The body takes three blows from that angel since the soul is a lovely dove sheltered inside of it. The first blow the body takes on the bottom of the feet. The feet grow cold and the body attempts to flee away. The second blow the body takes on the chest. The hands fail and the appetites fall quiet in a great disturbance. The body weeps with much misfortune and sorrow as all kinds of groans spring up and arise from the mind. But the blow that is third the body takes on the forehead. Its hearing becomes dull and its thinking grows too fuzzy for discernment. Then tears pour forth mournfully from the eyes and the mouth drinks the wine that death had treaded out and blended for it.
0: Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Um, the, the, all of the passages that you quote are are uh, very powerful in this way, and also terrifying. Uh, I hope my death is not like any of these. <laughs> I'll yeah. say that because. <laughs> so, so this is what struck me is that in these accounts, so trying to imagine what it would, what it will feel like, uh, right, to everybody, yeah. uh, to die. Yeah. Um, it seems as if I mean they're they're always presented as very. Frightening, you know, negative experiences that that you know sort of induce fear, rather than now one can imagine, right, a completely different approach, like even the the Stoic approach to death, right. Just a few centuries earlier, um, was an approach that these authors are probably familiar with, right, where you you face your death with equanimity, and it's sort of part of the natural order, and your soul is going to well, whatever the Stoics thought about this. Absolutely. Um, But these seem to be insisting on how terrifying this is so It it seems to be almost antithetical to the to the uh, um, external physical description So the preachers are not trying to tell ordinary Christians like you know imitate the Emperor Constantine and how he died right so What's going on with this contrast? Well,
1: I would say it's not even necessarily a contrast both of those things are existing at the same time so most of the um, sermons that I cite in chapter two are from the fourth or fifth century. And there are at that time other sermons that do cite this um, sort of stoic approach to death. You know, this is a moment when you can be reserved and you should think on the greater things that are coming like that. Is, that never goes away. But what starts to become more salient is this frightening, um, terrifying uh and often, what's interesting about it is that it becomes second person, and by that I mean preachers start saying things like "You will experience this," "You will experience this," instead of describing some abstract death. So it becomes very intimate. At the same time, that the sort of stoic thread continues.
0: Right, because the um, and and a lot of scholarship recently talks about how um, sermons, but also especially hymns. Um, to reposition the congregant you know to assume the subjectivity of the voice of the hymn yeah um, and and a lot of these sermons are trying to do that it seems like when they say you like you you're supposed to feel that and experience it right as a kind of virtual reality as it, the the sermon is being spoken um, but it, it would seem that this is, as an experience, as a terrifying experience of hearing this, it's a presuppo- it, it predisposes Christians to be afraid and to be less likely to have noble deaths. I mean, I, you, you even quoted here uh, John Chrysostom, who's always good for a quotation, right? I mean, you can find <laughs> anything. And he says, let's keep this fear alive.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, with him, you know, he wrote so much that you really can find anything. But I think... Yeah. Um, the point that you raise about hymns already predisposing people to s- assume a kind of subjectivity that they're hearing described to them in speech, um, this chapter especially relied on the work of Susan Ashbrook Harvey, Laura S. Lieber, Ophir Moonsmanor. or um, there's at least one more person that I, I'm at this point blanking on, but there was a whole cohort of scholars who had been working on that kind of, I don't know, hymnography or the, um, the way that, certain kinds of speech call out to an audience and of course as historians we can't know subjectively like what people were thinking as they were listening to a sermon but we can know what the sermon giver was trying to do or we can see what they might have been trying to do as they spoke and by their words what kinds of feelings they might have been trying to evoke
0: yeah uh, you, you might you were thinking of Derek Kruger uh,
1: I don't know that I cited Derek in the book, oh, okay. actually, yeah. but um, there's a fourth person. Uh, can't remember. Yeah. Sorry. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, so uh, many of these discussions have a, a, a biblical or scriptural background. Um, and one of the uh, episodes in the New Testament, of course, which was uh, famous, <laughs> was very productive also, but also somewhat difficult, was uh, when Jesus is dreading the moment of his upcoming death. Um, and the way it's described, you know, he he appears conflicted about what's about to happen, and this, of course, tied in with the representation of fear as something of of death as, as an experience to be greatly feared. But it also posed some uh, theological problems. That is, how how exactly is it that you know God, in the form of um, Jesus Christ, could be afraid? Um, of an experience that ultimately doesn't hold any, you know, threats or terrors for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you have a discussion about how St. Augustine tried to explain that, that passage. So c- can you say something about how he made sense of this?
1: Yeah, I, as you think about it, the Gospels are such a resource for people who are doing theology because, you know, when else do you have say, the direct words of the person that you're um, theorizing about. And those words, you can use them to interpret, you know, both his subjective states and his essence. But the Gospels are also a terrible resource in that there's so much um, that could go multiple directions that I think a lot of, especially late ancient work, as soon as Christian theologians start taking, um, say, words, very, very specifically grammatical um Sort of information, the content of words and about, and the content of words said by Christ. As soon as they take that seriously, then they have to develop sort of a system of managing all the words that could go the way that they don't want. And this scene, um, where Christ is dreading his upcoming uh, crucifixion, is just—it's a—it's a, it's a land—it's a set of landmines <laughs> because um, if you're trying to say that someone is omnipotent and um, uh, omniscient then fear makes no sense in that situation. And so Augustine has a what I think is a pretty smart uh, solution, and I'm not a big fan of Augustine. So that he, for me to say that Augustine comes up with something deft uh, is um, high praise. It's high praise, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is he's, he uses, I think, the same kind of transposition, and he uses the word um, transposition, but it's also what you and I have been talking about, the same kind of transposition where, a speaker is describing something and an audience member is brought to think about it in their own terms and perhaps even inserting themselves into the position. Augustine says this too, when Christ says these things, um, what he's doing is he's talking about you rather than himself. And it's a matter of his great care for humanity that he would even deign to speak these words about being fearful because he's trying to show you that he understands what it is to be fearful. And I mean, it's, it's kind of a brilliant move. Um, because it manages the discontinuity that's present in that story that could disrupt the sort of theology that says, oh, no, 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 this is a person who um, knew what was coming and knew that it would all be okay, thus could not have felt fear.
0: Right, so that very human response by Jesus is treated as as a stand-in for the human response of the average Christian. Right, right. You know, it's really interesting when i was reading that this part of your book i couldn't help but think about the um controversy that was beginning in the east um, <laughs> between Cyril and Astorius, uh, yeah. you know which was all about the the two natures controversy right like uh, christ has a human nature and he has a divine nature and how exactly did those two work together come together um, and some Nestorius, the Patriarch of Constantinople at that time, was you know leaning more toward treating each of those two natures, you know, more discreetly within its own boundaries and realm. And like, so this is this is the human side, and this is the divine side, and we can make distinctions between them. And Cyril was more interested in treating them as a kind of unity, or you know, sort of acting more as one, mm-hmm. which meant that he had problems with these kinds of scenes. Um, how how exactly do you interpret um, Jesus praying, or Jesus saying that he doesn't know something, or you know, just being afraid? <laughs> so so if you're not if you can't say that, well, that's just his human side acting or speaking what is it and 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 Cyril actually came up with some similar uh, explanations um was, sometimes he says they're pedagogical like yeah. Jesus is trying to instruct you know human beings how to approach certain situations so like, i mean I, I i don't find those explanations very <laughs> convincing on, on Cyril's part i think he was kind of sort of evading them i think the problem is deeper than that um But it's interesting that these are completely separate, right? Because I don't think Augustine was communicating with...
1: No, no. I just think that, um, you know, once Christian readers in late antiquity decide that they're going to treat the character of Jesus in the Gospels as um, also a representation of Christ and Christ's various natures, and, like, once you make that decision, then you have to have some kind of mitigation plan for the complexity that you meet in the Gospels, you know, Uh, His characterization is, uh, has all kinds of, as I remember, um, a beloved teacher, all sorts of lofty and lowly options. And if you think about, uh, this is not to reduce Nestorius's position to a management system, but if you think about the way that keeping a slight, not separation, but just keeping a slight distinction between the two natures um, helps manage that, it's a far more elegant Solution to the problem of reading the Gospels this way then is say Cyril's oh gosh every once in a while he's teaching.
0: Yeah. Do you see what yeah, I mean? Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, so say uh, a a question that this I don't think this comes up in the book but I, I, I thought it when I was reading it and did you encounter any differences any gender differences in the representation of the moment of death? Uh, and I ask this because the the previous discussion I had for this podcast was with Leonora Neville on Byzantine gender. Oh, nice. And we discussed some cases where it's very apparent that, you know, men are supposed to maintain a more stoic impassive, uh, you know, uh, attitude toward, you know, these kinds of moments, uh, death of a family member. or I was just wondering if that if you saw anything like that in these texts.
1: I did not. And that's not to say that it didn't exist. It's just that um, the sermons that I found and the texts that I found almost all imagined a male person dying with one really big exception. um, And that is the life of Macrina and the treatise on the soul and the resurrection that talks about Macrina's death, um, which was an early part of the research for this book. And then I just realized uh, what I could find there didn't really fit and didn't, it was sort of a separate kind of peripheral thing. Um, So there were a few monastic accounts of women dying and, you know, a few of them were, you know, this person has died, this beloved Abba has died and, oh, look, it's now clear that this person was a woman all along. But Mm -hmm. they didn't have, they didn't address the subjective um, or the attempt at producing a certain subjectivity that I was interested in. So no, the short answer is no, I didn't really find much difference. That's not to say that it's not there. It just wasn't present in the record that I had.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if, though, I mean, not not all of the texts that you deal with were written in Greek, but, you know, in Greek, the soul is a feminine and... I sometimes wonder if if it's if its reactions or behavior are feminized because of that reason. Like it, it's you know the soul is assumed to be more sort of emotionally vulnerable or something like that. Because I mean in, in Greek it's thought of as a feminine. But.
1: Yeah, it's a. I mean even in just the piece that we read from Jacob, it's a lovely dove sheltered inside the house of the body. That yeah, yeah, yeah. The body house that holds the bird is a pretty prominent theme in Syriac literature about the about the person
0: yeah. okay so let's um, let's move on to the uh, next plank of the argument. Um, yes so the this is this is the part that I enjoyed the most um, because you talked about rhetoric. Um, and you know I, I have to say so a lot of times when so I think that in Byzantine studies we have a bit of a problem with rhetoric these days and that we've we've explored it so much, but we're not entirely sure what to do with it. And often texts are just called, oh, this is rhetorical or this is following some rhetorical template or I I think it's a bit of a problem. And uh, your book actually provides one of the best ways forward. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. For for students of Byzantine rhetoric. Now, you may not have been thinking about that, um, but in fact, so you talk about rhetoric as a very active tool for energizing the imagination. And for doing new things, right? Yeah, um, and that's what I loved about it. Um, so you have some very very good formulations in here about rhetoric as a means of constructing a virtual reality, and uh, you know, as a new technology almost. Um, so I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you how you came to and and, and you get you go all in like you talk about the program the <laughs> Nazmata and the rhetorical classroom and all that, which I loved because finally. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, the the problem with Byzantine rhetoric is is often assumed to be sort of typecast and formulaic. Yeah. And once you identify a trope, well, that's that's it. You know, that passage is done. It's just a trope. Whereas you you treat it as a very active sort of powerful technology for doing new things. Right. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I mean, the first thing to say is that any time that contemporary scholarship describes something as boring or, um, you know, basic or other words like that, it, it's like bait because I think there is no way that ancient people or people in any culture put this much effort and time into something to find it boring. Do you see what I mean? Like if, if no, we are ready football. to just- <laughs> football. And yet, you know, there is a way, I am not a great football fan, you may or may not be, but, you know, um, I would say that between our two locations, there's a lot of energy spent on football and a lot of people find (laughs) a lot of meaning You're right about that. (laughs) Um, So first off, you know, hearing description after description about rote rhetoric or memorized rhetoric or that sort of thing first kind of piqued my interest. And then the other thing to say is that I'm married to a person who teaches a lot of first-year composition in university. Um, and I teach a lot of classes that are also first-year and second-year where I do some basic writing. And you know what? If you hand someone now, a contemporary you know, North American university student, if you hand them an assignment and say, write me three pages about X with an argument... What they're going to hand back to you is the five paragraph essay, because that is what they have learned to write in high school. And it is a form that contains, um, contains thinking. You know, you have an introduction, three paragraphs that make a point about your introduction, the thing that you've raised in the introduction, and then a conclusion that restates your introduction. I mean, that's the basic format. And what I found is that, um, talking with my spouse, with our friends and with my students about writing is that when you give someone a length, what they hear you giving them is, please write this form that I have known and I've practiced for a long time. And so their thinking comes out in a way that's constrained by that form. And I started thinking about that and thinking, all right, I have a group of writers and thinkers who are in the fourth century, really, for the first time being called in new roles and sort of publicly acknowledged in new roles. Not to say that there weren't, you know, Christian writers and thinkers before that, but the blend between I'm now a public figure and I'm sometimes holding down a church, a physical, um, beautiful building. And I have to do this other thing, namely talk to my congregation about something that's tragic or terrifying. Those people turn to what they knew for making sense of tragic and terrifying situations, which is the rhetorical forms that they practiced thinking about tragic and terrifying situations with. So I, I, and this is also informed by, you know, um, As a writer myself, I didn't know necessarily those forms. Even through my undergraduate, I didn't really know what a thesis statement was or a topic sentence. And so having those unlocked for me and realizing, oh, the whole world's been working according to these forms. It's just that they weren't explicitly labeled as such helped me understand so much of what other people were writing that I thought, ah, the form is the thing. Like it constrains and also allows you to construct things that you couldn't without it.
0: And new things, uh, that's what I found interesting, that they're not recycling old descriptions because like the passage that you read about the um, the sort of creeping death of the soul, of the body and the soul within it. Yeah. That's not typical for, you know, ancient rhetorical texts or ancient literature generally. Right. Um, Yeah, so this... and, And this is where the role of the imagination comes in. In other words, these rhetorical forms were used not only to produce an effective, right, a persuasive account, but of something that no one had experience of. That's exactly right. But that people had perhaps what, you know, the
1: composition of audiences for these sermons is something that of uh, educated guessing game. That is, there are scholars who do this very well. I'm not one of them, but um, we don't know a lot about ancient audiences. But what we do know might be that they had had, if they'd had contact with literature before, they had come in contact with this kind of form, even passively, you know, implicitly. So um, the example I've used to sometimes describe this part of my argument to other people is, if you and I went to a movie right now, um, we pick a movie, any movie, probably about 20 to 22 minutes into that movie, there would be the end of a story, a break in the action, and then we would start on the real movie. And that first act of films is something that has existed for a while now. We may or may not know about it, but because we consume movies we're trained to sort of expect it and once I point it out to somebody who hasn't seen it before, they're like, oh, oh now I understand and now I understand more about how movies are made, but that doesn't mean movies weren't effective on me before I understood the form. So, Christian writers could use this form that both they had been trained in and their audiences might have passively or implicitly kind of Began to understand or expect even To make new things happen in part because both the speaker and the audience are trained up in it And know a bit about how it works and what its expectations are
0: Yeah, when I was reading your description of this, I I actually thought of movies as well Did you? I I did, but more in a different way, Uh, not so much in terms of the structure I was actually thinking of CGI, Oh. It, yes. The CGI is the technology by which we visualize these days, right? Things that like aren't real. Yeah. And I remember the first time I was exposed to it in a very powerful way. I had just arrived in the US. I think it was my first second year or something like that. And it was Jurassic Park. <gasps> yeah. Yeah, and I saw, Yeah. Like for, the, <laughs> like for the first time I thought, wow, that like that totally feels real. And it was completely made up right like just a digital simulacrum of a thing that may not have you know it existed but it didn't exist like that i have a
1: visceral memory of seeing that movie at a midnight showing and screaming i mean screaming physically screaming because in the scene where they're in the car and there's a sunroof and the thing is on top of the sunroof. exactly
0: yeah oh and so i was when i was reading the descriptions in these sermons about the moment of death and you get that sort of tingle and that awful sensation. Um, I, I, I thought, wow, this is their CGI. they, They can use this rhetoric, right. To, to simulate experiences that they hadn't had. I mean, maybe they'd seen them from, you know, they'd seen people die. Um, but I thought, wow, this is a very powerful tool. Um, and, uh, and, and that's what I liked about your, the, the, your book, I think, makes a solid contribution to Byzantine literature. And, and I really wish we could um, apply this kind of uh, reading that is of the imagination uh, to the literature. So you, especially when we're talking about rhetoric. So you, you like take ekphrasis, right? Often we treat ekphrasis as just a description of a real thing. Like, especially yeah. in art history and archaeology, like, we don't have the monument, but we have a description of it, which we'll, I guess, mm. do as a sort of secondhand. But these are descriptions of things that that were not, you know, visible. Right. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, you know, I'm glad you brought up CGI, because as I've talked with friends about this book, I think there's a tendency, maybe not with you and me, but with others, to um, think about the possible descriptions or the creation of a virtual reality through speech, just through auditory things alone, you know, me just talking to you as somehow impoverished versus the very clear, very realistic CGI that we have available now. So, you know, if I just described to you, there's a velociraptor and it's right. stamping in the sunroof, maybe you won't have that, um, that possible reaction. But I think noting that those two things happen on a a spectrum of how much detail is provided to the audience and how much is not, and thinking when the audience is not provided every last detail, as they are with, say, a a medium-like film where you see everything and you're hearing everything and it's supposed to look very real, then the audience has more work to do. And just like I think in our classes, the more work a student does or the more work a listener does to some extent, the more that thing that they're working on takes them over and inhabits them. So, you know, I watched Jurassic Park and then I walked out of the movie and I didn't think a velociraptor is going to come at me out, out of my car or, you know, it's going to attack me on the next road that I turned down. But if I had spent the time to imaginatively call that up in my mind, and if someone had told me, okay, not only do you have to do this once while I'm telling you about this Velociraptor, but you need to do it every night before you go to bed right, right, or every morning, yeah. then it's in me and affects me in a way that I think is a little bit deeper than the more realistic or more sort of detail-heavy kinds of recreations of things.
0: Yeah, and, and sermons were much more sort of performative experiences and immersive experiences. Um, there's an audience, uh, so you're part of a group. I mean, it would have been similar in, in some respects, uh, yeah. and, and much more um, affecting of all of the senses simultaneously. Um, speaking of performance, so one aspect, I just want to give a, a, our listeners a, a, a specific sense of, of what the training involved here is and what are these rhetorical templates. And you, you talk um, uh, at some length about the speech in character, mm-hmm. uh, ethiopia in Greek, right? And um, so how is that uh, something that would train... a a preacher or anybody to imagine the moment of death like this?
1: Well, it's, as an exercise, it is one of the only writing or composition exercises that calls on a student to work in first person. And, um, you know, you could write a speech in character about anyone. You could write it, you know, what does the mailman say when he's about to knock on my door to deliver a package? Or what um, what does the cyclist say when he's about to start a race? those are kinds of prompts for speeches and character, but the prompts that survive from late antiquity are almost all kind of of a piece. And they tend to be focused on tragic characters who are right at the moment of realizing that they're in a tragedy. So um, what does Medea say when she's about to slit the throats of her children? Or um, what does uh, Achilles say when he realizes, you know, there's like 15 about him. So like whatever tragedy he's facing at the moment. Um, and they call upon students who, you know, as best as we know are, you know, in their adolescence somewhere, they're, are not young children, but they're not men. Um, they call upon students to step into that character and write in first person words that don't exist yet for that character that express what their situation is like. And, Um, usually students would do this because teachers told them to according to a temporal pattern. So they would describe the present. You know, I've just now realized that I've killed this warrior and yet it turns out to be a woman that I have fallen in love with. Um, They describe the past next. So I used to think that I was a good soldier and I needed to kill every person that I met in battle. And how wrong was it to think that? And then they move to the future, which is usually going to be a little bit worse than their present. So now I realize I've killed this woman that I love and my um, my life will be destitute and I'll never find love again. These are the kinds of moves that students were asked to make. And what's interesting, I mean, there's a lot that's interesting, but an interesting piece of it is that you can imagine these are young men who have never actually killed someone they love in battle. They're not somebody who, have, you know, who has already slit the throats of their children. They're asked to take on situations that they themselves have never been in in order to develop some sense of what remorse feels like. And I think it was about introducing caution to young people (laughs) in the same way that, you know, we say, you know, you eat those French fries and that hamburger now, but when you're 65 and you have, you know, a a widow maker, you're really going to regret having had that hamburger. Like we play with temporality a lot that way to get people to act in ways we think they should.
0: Yeah. I've, I've often wondered whether that kind of exercise instilled any kind of empathy um, for you know other groups of people or individuals, because the range of characters that these students were expected to take on is is quite impressive. Um, yeah. Now, you know, it'd be hard to prove any kind of link, and empathy is very difficult to find. But uh, it definitely involved taking on a different voice, a different persona, a different social you know position. Um, you, know, you know, one of my fa- <laughs> and some of them are, I think, amusing. I mean, I think they were. Uh, the, one of my favorites was um, uh, what? What? Yes. What does Hades say when Lazarus is resurrected? <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> Give him yeah, back. Yeah. I mean, it's like, wait, wait a minute. What? What are you doing there? Where are you going? <laughs> you know,
1: um, just as a little teaser, I'm actually starting a new project right now, and the opening chapter is about several of these speeches and character. Where you might think they would develop empathy by writing them because they're all about uh, agents who discover that they have agency. So, um what does the prostitute say when she discovers that she has self-control? or <laughs> what does the eunuch say when he falls in love? Yeah. but so far, and this is preliminary, but i'm as I'm writing it now, I'm realizing that empathy isn't really what's being cultivated in these situations. It's more a sense of the play at. Taking someone that socially you think, of course, this person is not an Of course, you know, to the late ancient mind, of course, a prostitute has no self-control. That's the whole problem. And then getting a thrill out of playing the edge there. I mean, um, yeah. Yeah, So you'd think it would come up with empathy, but I'm finding that no, actually. Right. (laughs) It's more about reinforcing a stereotype about what a prostitute is like or what a eunuch is like.
0: Yeah, it's like an exercise in typecasting.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Right. And that's where I guess that's where you have to be looking for deviations from social norms mm-hmm. to see if they came up with something original that wouldn't have been part of the package of stereotypes or prejudices and so forth. Yeah, that's a tricky. Well, we can talk about that some more. Uh, we can actually devote a separate episode to that. Sure. Uh, so I wanted to move on to the final part of the argument, which is where you take the, these, the representation, the imagination of death and then you sort of um, put it back into the arena of the political history of the church as a potential argument for using coercion against people. So can you explain a little bit about how, what's the connection? So how do these descriptions, how does this imagination then activate, you know, real world institutions to, to do this? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, when I started the book, I thought this could be sort of traditional intellectual history, but I, I've never liked the separation of intellectual history from regular history because I think ideas have consequences. And I mean, I put, yes, I put consequences right in the title. Cause I'm like the way we think about things and man, especially the way we think about the futures of other people really, really changes what we're willing to do in terms of allocation of resources, allocation of empathy. Um, there are, you know, there's a million contemporary examples that I could use, but, uh, what the other, so I was interested in just making the case that ideas have teeth, you know, you don't just think some ideas and then political and sort of social things happen without them. And then I had been reading a lot about violence in late antiquity and consistently coming up against the idea that, um, Christians became willing to say violence was an acceptable thing to do to people who were religiously deviant, um, because they had been, uh, cultivating a culture that remembered martyrdom. And that argument just didn't ever make sense to me because it was mostly about looking at the juxtaposition of those two things, a culture that cultivates a sense of having been martyrs in the past and also a culture that's willing to use state violence against religious deviants. Those two things don't go together. And scholars were often just putting them together and saying, look how ironic this is. But irony is no kind of explanation. You know, in fact, irony acknowledges that there isn't an explanation there. And it was reading a piece, a text that ended up in chapter two that got me to think about this. Um, Schnuda of Atripa, who's a Coptic writer, says that essentially the people he's talking to don't have a sharp enough sense of what the final judgment will be like. And so he's going to use a description of their imminent death, you know, not, you know, tomorrow, but like the death that's going to happen in this lifetime, um, as a primer for that. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Isn't the last judgment supposed to be terrible enough that you don't need some kind of intervening, intermediate primer to get people to take it seriously. And at that moment, those two things, um, which seemed separate to me became very clearly related in that The only justification, when Christians offer an explicit justification for the use of state violence, what their justification is, is we're protecting you from this later thing. But that later thing had always existed in the Christian imagination. And there wasn't really, there were, you know, Christians like Shenouda complaining that people weren't taking the last judgment seriously enough. And so I wondered if the kind of imagery about that intermediate period, say, one's one's own death and the moments that follow it, if that could serve as the consequences that we're keeping you from when we intervene to do um, to compel you to become orthodox, not big O, but small O, orthodox. Right. And I thought, well, you know, I'll try this out and uh, I'll put it in the book and see what people think.
0: Yeah, and you so you, you, it leads you to Augustine, uh, you know, back to Augustine again, right? And, yeah. and he, you know, as he worked his way toward an explicit argument uh, in favor of uh, compulsion. Um, Right. And you had these interesting passages where, um, again, I mean, again, to put it in modern terms, it's almost as if he's bringing out, in fact, he is bringing out people, I mean, in his own voice, um, who are attesting that they're much happier now ...that they have been required or forced to convert to his version of Christianity. Almost like, um, you know, satisfied customers in that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, And he brings them out and he says, here, here are some satisfied customers. And the idea is that, like, the end result that's mediated through this, um, you know, a bit of a uh, the fear induced by the the consequences of not converting... Um, it's worth it. It's totally worth it. Uh, like you can imagine them in an ad because uh, they are endorsing the product. Uh, you know, I, I was skeptical at first, <laughs> but yeah, I came around. And so, so you're arguing that the, the, the imagination of death in, in the way in which, um, you know, these uh, preachers uh, developed it, that this was a, a mediating factor in, in, in helping, say, people like Augustine make this step, But take that step from, I don't know if we should be forcing people to, yeah, totally worth it. Right.
1: And, you know, if you're going to deal with discussions of compulsion for religious allegiance in late antiquity, you have to deal with Augustine. I mean, he's practically one of the only people who's really explicit about his reasoning. And as I was writing about it, I thought, you know, he is he's the location that people go to to talk about justifications for violence But he's not actually reasoning about violence. He's never, he doesn't actually deal with, here is an independent agent in front of me who thinks differently than I do. And let me now talk about what it means to do violence to that person to force them to become like me. He has a series of um, substitutions and surrogacies that he goes through so that, like you say, he's never quite talking about the person who's facing, um, say, being deposed from their seat or being forced in some way, uh, to join his community. Instead, he's talking about people who have already gone through it in a, in a way we do this sometimes. Like I know that, for example, it will be hard for you to go on this diet, um, and to give up all the foods that you like to eat, but here are people who have done it and they're happy they've done it. And what you don't see is, you know, people struggling, um, people being hungry, people, you know, wishing that they could go out with their friends and be social, but they have to stay home and cook their own food because they can't eat X or Y. It, you know, That's not the same as religious violence, but it's a parallel system where we don't often find ourselves ethically reasoning with the actual subject in front of us. We reason with the person after the things we've done to them.
0: Yeah, actually, we do that a lot, don't we? I mean, now that I think about it, so I'm I'm hearing you talk about those cases. We we, even phrases like "you owe it to yourself" and (laughs) right, but like you owe it to your future self, right? right? Which is a potential self that you have to imagine. And once you've constructed that future self in your imagination, now you have responsibilities toward that person, and the way you get from where you are now to that person right is to do this this and this and this
1: i mean if we do it in things as pedestrian as you need to learn these principal parts because 10 years from now you're going to want to know it and not right, have to right, go f- right. yeah <laughs> like and you know as ed- educators both of us this is the premise of all that we're doing nobody wants to sit at home on a thursday afternoon and write a research paper for one of our classes but we say you will have one to have done this at some point in the future
0: yeah that's in an, what, what and it's a uh, what tense is that
1: <laughs> right exactly i don't know but it is a it is a um it's a motivational scheme that we use for a lot of things and it from the most pedestrian to the most non-pedestrian and important things like should i literally compel this person physically to do what i want them to do yeah. Should I construct an entire institution that says it's okay to compel this person physically to do what I want them to do?
0: Uh, yes, uh, and even for like drug addiction and all kinds of things. Exactly. Um, it's it, to bring this back to the the um, issue of ideas and their teeth. Yeah, it's quite striking how much of our otherwise sort of very pragmatic and you know. Level-headed civilization is actually premised on the imagination—that is, you know, <laughs> imaginative acts about about the future or about ideal types of people we want to be or societies and so on. They actually drive uh, policies and behaviors in the present. Um, I, I think that's fundamental. Um, it's just how important um, both—not just the imagination, but also fantasy. Absolutely, is um, for all that we like to think that we're actually just engaging with the you know physical world around us. We're actually engaged in little fantasies that uh, that drive and propel all of these things that we're doing. And I mean, we
1: usually call it potential. You know, we usually talk uh, about oh, I've met this student or I've met this person at work, and they have X potential. But all that is is forgive that. Um, no I can right. repeat this. All that is is that's my home phone. Forgive me. You'll have no, that's to. That's okay. That
0: for... Phones. That's what phones do these days.
1: So um, when we talk about you know the way that we imagine or fantasize other people, oftentimes we just use the word potential. Like I've met this student; she has great potential for X. Or I've met a coworker who has the potential to do this. And what we're really doing is we're imagining the chronology of that person's future and its extent, you know, how, how capable do we think they are? What kind of growth do we think they're capable of um, achieving at some point? And we make decisions about what kind of resources of time of money, of just structural support we offer them based on how we estimate that potential future. Yeah,
0: yeah, this is Yeah, I think at uh, Dumbarton Oaks in a year, they're they're having a, or or later this year, there's a a day, a teaching day devoted to the history of the imagination. Ooh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think that ideas and the imagination and fantasy should be brought into mainstream history, though it's very hard to do that, right? Like we don't have very good models for it. Yeah. And and that's one of the reasons why I liked your book, because you actually go, you know, step by step, you, you go through all the imaginative process and then you you put it into um, a, a policy um, a history, which which I liked. Uh, good. Ellen, we're almost out of time. Um, I'd like at the end, um, if you could recommend two books um, that you've read that are not about this field necessarily, but that you'd like to recommend to our listeners who are always looking for good reads.
1: Absolutely. I have two. And they're actually both about incorporating the imagination into reconstructions of things. So the first is a book called Artful by Ali Smith, the Scottish playwright and novelist. And it gets listed in her nonfiction works. But as you read it, it becomes clear that it's partially fictional. So um, it's set up as if to be the result of A woman whose spouse dies in the middle of preparing to give four academic lectures. And that woman, as she's grieving, goes through her spouse's materials for the lectures and then reconstructs them. So it is, forgive me, um, this book is itself four essays worth of literary criticism, but couched in slightly fictional terms as if they are simply produced by this woman's grieving process of going through going through her husband's things. So that, as a book, it's actually um, a model for the next project I'm doing uh, because I'm interested in how she manages in a sort of alchemical process to present something fictional that's not fictional either. The other thing is not even a book, although you could read the scholar's books and, and benefit from them, but um, the other thing is an essay by Sidia Hartman, who's a scholar of African-American history. The essay is called Venus in Two Acts, and it is a study of what to do when we don't have a lot about a subject in the historical record. Um, and the essay begins talking about a, a piece, a, an event that happened on a slaving ship where we just barely learned the name of one woman on that ship. And then it's an ethical reflection on how much as a historian to tell that story, um, how much one can assume about what's going on based on other resources and almost the ethical imperative to bring that person into the record because they existed, but also to be careful about how we bring them into the record because really the only thing we know about them is this one devastating incident. Um, So it's been really useful to me as I try to think about the limitations of the historical record I work with. Most of the writers, practically all of the writers that I deal with are men. They're all elite men. Um, They've all survived. Their works have all survived the vagaries of transmission, which means they're selected for things that fit within Christian tradition and aren't necessarily kind of edgy or fuzzy. So there's a lot to do um, when you inherit an archive, you know, as any archive is, but ours I think is a little more limited than say modern or pre-modern archives or early modern archives. There's a lot to do with an archive that you have to, as a historian judiciously think I need to invent something here. And I don't mean make it up. I mean like, find it in a way that it hasn't been found before
0: all right um well thank you I'm, I'm sure you'll keep looking <laughs> to find it. i will um, thank
1: you so much for having me this was a delight
0: yeah it was a real pleasure and i look forward to the next occasion when we can do it same same bye Ellie.
1: thank you